0: Last few weeks, we've been in a series called Scripture Songs, and each week we are looking at a song in Scripture. And I've said uh, a few times that we have these great songs in Scripture, but we don't have the music, but we have the lyrics and the stories that surround them. So we're going to close by looking at what many believe to be the oldest song in the Bible. It's called the Song of Moses. And according to archaeologists... It's 3,459 years old. So the song we're going to be looking at is, I don't know how they got that exact number. I mean, that's a little baffling. But there is times in Scripture and years um, that we can look back. And we know that this song is uh, well over 3,000 years old. We can be sure of that. And it could be older. But according to um, what we approximate, it's from 1446 B.C., and it's a victory song. It's the song of the people of God as they uh, crossed over the Red Sea. And it's just a, just a victory song. And it's, it became a national anthem for the people of Israel. And for the people of God, this was their national anthem. So I've been trying to connect the dots with a song from our lives. Uh, I used Tom Petty and John Bon Jovi. I don't really know what I was thinking, but it seemed to work at the time. Um, But, you know, thinking of a national anthem, we have a national anthem. It's called the Star-Spangled Banner. I asked my son to research it on Wikipedia for me, and he found some fun facts about it. Um, It was actually a poem written in 1814 by Francis Scott Key, and it's really amazing. It was written less than 100 miles from here at Fort McHenry uh, in the port of Baltimore, and the British Royal Navy just was attacking Fort McHenry through the night. And Francis Scott Key um, was an amateur poet and he wrote this song um, around the battle uh, in the War of 1812. And uh, by 1931, Congress made a resolution. We all know when Congress makes a resolution that it becomes official. So in 1931, the Star Spangled Banner became the official national anthem of the United States of America. And most of us can work our way through the first verse, but did you know it had four verses? And um, it's an interesting song. The poem was actually, this is ironic, the poem was actually set to a British melody of the day that the Americans kind of knew. So here it is, the British Royal Navy attacking And this poem is written, and the melodic structure of the song is actually a British song. So I don't know how that worked out, but um, it has a huge vocal range. It's an octave and a half. So as far as vocalists go, it can be a challenging song to sing, like, on a cold day when your president is being inaugurated. And (laughs) I would have done the same thing, so. (laughs) But it's... You know, we've all been in that sporting event where we just try to kind of work our way through this song and hit the high notes. Um, and uh, But yeah, I looked, I went and I looked at the, the verses of this song. I could not believe the fourth verse. I couldn't believe it. I've never seen it before. Probably some of you have. But um, listen to the fourth verse and think of, I don't know, it's just amazing. Oh, thus be it ever, when free men shall stand, between their loved home and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust, and the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave." So our our national song is 199 years old. I did the math. And um, that's about, as a nation, that's almost as far back as we can go. We can go a little bit further. But I say we look at an older song today, a much older song. So turn to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to look at the song of Moses. The Exodus is when God brought the people out of slavery um, from Egypt and he delivered them through all the plagues and all the the amazing story. And then he crossed them over the Red Sea and he delivered them. So it's this victory song that Moses and the people sing uh, right there on the brink of the victory. Listen to the first verse in Exodus 15. Then Moses And the Israelites sang this song to the Lord I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. This first verse is essentially the summary of the first half of the song. Moses will go on to repeat this idea um, three or four times that God is highly exalted. And the horse and its rider have been thrown into the depths of the sea. And as I looked at this song, I wondered, well, what does it mean that God is highly exalted and that his enemy has been cast down to the depths? What's the significance of that comparison? Because that's what the song does. It continues to compare um, the heights and the exaltation of who God is versus the depths that the enemy has been cast down. In fact, we're going to see this pattern. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. I love this picture. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. I just love the way that that flows, that here Israel is, and they just see the Lord as their strength. And the Lord becomes their song. That's a pretty rare occurrence in scripture that the Lord would become a song and he is a song and then he becomes their salvation. It's this progression of looking to the Lord who's our strength, responding to him in song and then recognizing that he has become the salvation of the people. He goes on and Moses says, he is my God and I will praise him. The word God there is Elohim, which is the name of God, but it's the General name of God. So that's why Moses has to say, He's my Elohim. He's my God. And not only that, he says, He's my Father's Elohim, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. What does it mean that the Lord is a warrior? That's not uh, a picture in scripture that that we see often. Although the idea that God is a warrior is certain there, certainly there all the time. Turn back to Exodus chapter thirteen, verse seventeen. Listen to the way that the Lord is the warrior of this battle. Listen to the way that He's orchestrating the fight in Exodus thirteen, beginning in verse seventeen. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, armed for battle. And skip down to Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-harirath between Migdal and the sea. They, to, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. The Lord is the warrior. The Lord is orchestrating this fight. And he does something that's very unstrategic. He backs up the people of Israel up against the Red Sea. And any good warrior would know that 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 was not a smart move. Um, In fact, Pharaoh, who was a great warrior... Uh, He went after the people. He said, this is our opportunity to strike. They're backed up against the Red Sea. Did you see how the Lord led them back that way? He was orchestrating and he was the warrior. And then we see um, this phrase that the Lord is his name. This is, uh, what it's saying here is that Yahweh is the name of the Lord the, the word Yahweh is the personal, the covenantal name of God. It's the name uh, that the Hebrew people used for God. So it was not a gen- general name for God. It was a specific personal name, Yahweh. And Moses had been revealed this name by God early in the Exodus story. And in Exodus chapter 5, Aaron and Moses, they come before Pharaoh. And they say, Pharaoh, you need to let our people go uh, so that they might go and worship Uh, their God, Yahweh, in the desert. Pharaoh says, I don't know that name. That's what he says in Exodus 5. You can go look at it. I don't know that name and I don't know that God. Pharaoh didn't recognize the name of the Lord. But in this song, it's really cool. The Lord's name is mentioned seven times. And we haven't even heard the enemy yet. Verse 1, the enemy is a horse and its rider. I mean, even the rider, the horse shows up before the rider and it's an unnamed enemy at this point. And then it goes on to just clearly explain who God is. And then in verse four, we see Pharaoh's name for the first time. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, God has hurled into the sea. They sank like depths, sank to the depths like a stone. We'll see this repeated in verse 6. It says, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart. Of the sea. The Lord is not only a warrior, but the Lord is also a king. The word majesty appears here. It's the the majestic right hand of God that shatters the enemy. When God is described as majestic, that means he's the king. So the king, the warrior king, came down and he threw down the enemy. That I love the phrase he threw down for the fight. I think I've heard teenagers use that phrase. This idea of throwing down the enemy for the fight. And here it is, the exalted king coming down to the fight. And his right hand is majestic and his right hand shatters. I never would have thought of putting those two ideas together. A majestic hand that shatters the enemy. We see this uh, repetition again that it's the majestic right hand of God that sends the enemy into the deep. And look at verse 9. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters." The enemy boasted. I mean, he got close and he, he could see the victory. He said, I will devour them. I will consume them. Um, but the Lord blew with his breath. The enemy said, my hand will destroy the enemy, but the Lord blew with his breath. And we see this pattern again, that it's the Lord that consumes the enemy. And then we see it one last time in verse 11. This repetition. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. We see this um, recognition that God, the warrior God, is majestic in holiness, that he shows up and that he is the one that wins the battle. For the people. And Moses, over and over again, he says, God is highly exalted. The enemy he has hurled into the sea. God is highly exalted. The enemy has been swallowed up and has sank like a stone to the depths. God is highly exalted. The horse and its rider have been consumed, thrown down, and shattered. God is highly exalted. The enemy sank lead to the bottom of the mighty waters. God is highly exalted. The enemy was swallowed up by the earth. One of the ways that we see that God is majestic is because he devours the enemy. There is an enemy. And oftentimes it's hard to discern who that enemy is. But one thing we can be really sure of is that God devours him. And um, I think Israel found themselves at a really interesting place. They were on a threshold. And they look back, and Moses knows that he has to repeat for the people um, that God is this mighty warrior that's just delivered them. And it's here that the song takes a really interesting turn. When I was studying it, I didn't expect to see this. In verse 13, we see uh, another summary verse in the song, and the song is gonna start to look forward and it's gonna never turn back. It's gonna start to look forward into something really interesting. In verse 13, it says, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. It's God's unfailing love that will now lead them into the future. I would have thought Uh, that they would have just sung about this victory, and then maybe they would have gone on. But the rest of the song starts to look forward, and it says that God's unfailing love, the word unfailing there is that God's love is loyal. Though um, the people of Israel, though their, their love fails, they give up on the Lord over and over again, just like we do. But the Lord's love is unfailing. He's completely loyal, and it's his love that leads. That's what it says. Not only that, but it's his strength that guides the people. And they're still going somewhere. They're going to worship the Lord, and they're not there yet. And it's very important on this threshold, at this national anthem of a place, to recognize we are still moving forward. And look what happens in verse 14. Look, as they look forward to their next enemies. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. I would have never, I mean, I have no idea how Moses saw into all of these enemies. I mean, obviously through his anointing and through uh, what the Lord had revealed to him, somehow Moses foresaw the enemies that Israel would face for the, the next countless years, the Philistines, The Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, these are the enemies that would plague the nation of Israel for years. And we know when Joshua um, came back and was spying on the land of Canaan, and it was the promised land, we know that the kings of Canaan had heard about the Exodus, and it says they melted in fear when they remembered what the Lord had done when he brought them up out of Egypt. And I think this is where it's important to see in a song that not only are the scripture songs helpful to marking uh, where the people are and looking back on who God is and what he's done, his majestic wonders, but they also look forward. And there's this place in the history of the people where they're allowed to look forward with uh, clarity. I mean, they see into the enemy that they're about to face and On the threshold of this song, they have such clarity. And it's kind of remarkable because, um, do you know how long it took before the nation of Israel uh, complained about the Lord's deliverance? Three days, three days from the crossing of the Red Sea, they were in the desert of Shur. They were looking for water, and they came upon bitter water. And they grumbled to Moses, and hence were grumbling to the Lord. So the Lord said, okay, I'll make the water sweet. So that's what he did. And then, um, do you know how long it took before the people said they wished they had died in Egypt? About a month, basically a month. They, they found themselves in the desert of sin, and, and they... Remembered how much food they had in Egypt. And they were just like, ah, wish we had died here because we'd rather be in Egypt. So the Lord, in his unfailing, loyal love, um, he strengthened them with manna and quail. And he gave them, he gave them a feast, like more then they could eat, and they even messed that up, right? So it's this song. It's this song on the threshold that the people needed because they lost clarity, like, really quickly. Before they even encountered an enemy, they found their own enemy in themselves. And I'm the same way. I mean, about three days after some sort of breakthrough, spiritual breakthrough in my life, I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> forgetting already what happened and and about a month later after something really significant happens i've generally moved on and it's hard to remember like what happened how it happened after a month we forget what god did in miraculous majestic wonder we forget in a month so this song exists simply for the fact of marking the threshold of how God is intervening in the people's lives in a powerful way. And I'm so glad that we have this song in Scripture. I'm so glad that Moses took the time to write it down, to poetically map out what happened, to poetically map out where they were headed. And as we think about Scripture songs, I want to really close around one major idea And that is that when it comes to worship, and this is how I think about worship, to me, worship is really two big components. As far as I think of me worshiping God and giving him glory, I think of, uh, number one, that God allows me to worship him and there's really nothing in me without Christ that can bring glory to God. But practically speaking, I think of my worship to him as mission plus song. And what I think of as the mission is all the work and all of the um, things that we're asked to pursue on behalf of God. Basically, God told us to make his name great in all the earth. That's the mission we're on as followers of God and as followers of Christ. Um, Our missional act of worship is to make the name of Jesus known in the world. And that brings a lot of glory to God. That is one of the major ways that we worship God, is by bringing uh, recognition to his name so that people recognize the name of Yahweh, the name of Savior, the name of Jesus. But the other part of it, the other aspect, is the song. The song is how we um, express our love to God. And... It's interesting because most of life is on mission, and a very small sliver of life is in song. And I think because of our time that we spend on mission for God, we minimize the importance of song in our life. So I've been thinking about our church. What does it mean that our church um, would sing a song on a threshold? I mean, have we ever done that? I mean, we're about, our history is a lot different. We're, we have about 30 some odd years of history. I thought about it and I went back and I started to find some thresholds where we sang songs. Um, this past fall, in September, we gathered under a big tent out in the field and it was called the sending service. We sang songs, and we sent a seed congregation to Wilmington to be a new campus there, a new congregation. And that was a threshold that we were on, something we had never done before as a church, and we did it. A year before, in May, we gathered as a church, as one church in the city of Wilmington. We went to the Queen Theater. We said, we're not having church here at Hokeson. We're all going to somehow figure it out. We're going to get there, and we're going to worship at the Queen Theater, and we did that. And that was, we were, at that point, we were on the threshold because we were a forerunner of the campus that meets there each week now. Go back a few more years. In 2007, that was another Sunday. We said, we're not having church in this room. All of us, we went up to Black Rock Retreat Center and we celebrated 25 years of history as a church. We looked back and we looked forward and we sang songs on the threshold. And then this is a fun one. In August of 2000, 2000, this room had just been renovated. And there was a small, you know, we were a small church back then, and people invested a lot of their resources to um, put air conditioning in this room. So in August, I love it happened in August, they cranked the AC and they worshiped. It was a threshold. Now we we complain because it's too cold in here often. (laughs) We forget so easily. Um, In November of 1983, the charter members, 72 members and 26 families, they called the first full-time pastor. They took the responsibility as a congregation to call a man of God and to support him in the ministry, and they celebrated. And then the year before that, in August of 1982, it's about as far back as we can go as a church, um, we worshiped in this building for the first time ever. And uh, those are some thresholds in, our, in the life of our church they help us look back and they help us look forward. And then I've I really been thinking a lot about what it means as individuals, as followers of God and followers of Christ. What does it mean that we have threshold songs in our life? And I really do believe we, we do think, have a few things out of order here, generally speaking. Um, I think because we're so mission focused, these, these are the kind of people we are, we're on a mission for God. That we minimize the song and the importance of the song. I mean, I'm really thankful that Moses and David wrote songs because I think if they hadn't, um, we'd minimize them potentially even more. But we we get so focused on the mission that we forget that uh, part of worship is expressing a song to God. And if you um, if you have kind of forgotten that or you've minimized it too much in your life, um, you're lacking a perspective. You're lacking the perspective of the Father. And uh, this is kind of analogous to, um, for those of us that are parents and for those of you that are parents, as your kids grow up uh, and as they're in the house, every once in a while, and it's kind of unplanned out, you, you catch wind that the kids are up to something. And... As you start to put the data together, it's like things are not going crazy, but it sounds like, hey, something's going on. And it, it's just kind of like, okay, what's going on? And you come to find out the children are preparing a show for the parents. And there's tickets. Tickets are made. There's a showtime. There's choreography. There's dances and there's parts. Usually, like, the little kid gets this, like, terrible part and his costume's too big. And, and, uh, and then it comes to the showtime. So the parents are brought in. There's usually row chairs that have been set up, and they sit down. And uh, I've really enjoyed those times as a parent. And it's there that, that I feel like I've seen into something. The kids at that point, I've realized they're so, uh, they, they believe the content of the show is, is what is really remarkable. I mean, they think that the costumes are awesome, and the parts are awesome, and they really believe they've pulled together like an A plus production. And as the parents sit back, they, they see something entirely different, right? It's um it's not the that the parts were done so well. It's not that the lines were recited so perfectly. I mean what we see as parents is we see the child and we see this beautiful expression of love it's really as if they're saying daddy i love you and and that's a great picture of what it's like for us when we sing a song and i just want to encourage you that you are a child of god and you've been given a voice Uh, I read a book called Unceasing Worship by Harold Best, and he says, the human voice is the only instrument that God created. And man has gone on to create instrument after instrument. Most of the instruments that we build are built off of a framework of the human voice. Our instruments can sometimes go beyond the human voice, but the human voice is still really special and unique. When Human voices gather, even untrained human voices. They can make a beautiful sound. And this is from the Lord. I I believe that God loves to hear that sound. And I just want to, and this may sound like really practical at the end, and I hope it is, but I almost don't know how to say it, but I'd like to give you some thoughts on what it means to sing. I think the first thing is the object of our worship is most important. That really hasn't been the topic today, but I need to say it. The object of our worship is God. The object of our worship is Jesus Christ. The object of our worship is the spirit that works among us. Uh, This is God, and this is who he's presented himself in Scripture. He's the object of our worship. Um, But when it comes to singing and our voice, I think it's helpful to, to... Follow and practice the pattern of Scripture. So, when God shows up in your life, when He does something wondrous and amazing, uh, I think you should write a song at some point. But even if you don't write a song, what you should do is you should stop and you should look up and you should exalt the Lord. And as you're doing that, you should look back on what God has done and you should look forward because at that instant, when God shows up and does something amazing in your life and you see it, you have clarity that you can see your enemies ahead, and you have confidence that God is unfailing in his love and that his strength will guide. And then, um, getting really practical, did you know that um, if you sing louder, you can actually sing more on tune? And (laughs) I'm not really saying that you should do this later today, but as you project your voice... um, it's actually easier to sing on tune when you are projecting your voice because you're really going after it. When you hold back and when you're timid, uh, there's, you know, it's okay to do that sometimes. There might be a place for that, but the kind of expression that God is looking for is just a full-out expression. You know? Like a song we sang, My Soul Sing Like Never Before. Every time we sing that, I'm really challenged by it because I'm like, how can my soul... Sing like never before. You know, and every time that song is convicting, but um, God is looking for you to express. And then the other thing with your voice is um, as you learn and sing loud in the car or whatever you need to do, but your voice is your voice. God has given you your voice, and it is an instrument. And God is not looking for you to mimic a different type of voice. Um, He may want you to improve your voice, but He. He may just want you to sing in your voice. Um, you know, So as you sing, start to think about how you're singing compared to your speaking voice. Your speaking voice and your singing voice shouldn't be like that far apart. Sometimes they are, but um, that's, that's one thought. And then lastly, this is more of an asterisk on the whole deal. Um, songs are, like I said, a small sliver of our worship. And the mission of God is a holistic way that we worship God. And, but we should not minimize the song. Even though it has a small place in the life of our church right now, we shouldn't minimize it. Because um, in Revelation chapter 15, it says that when they had victory over the beast... And the enemy, that the Lord put harps in the people's hands. And it says that they sang the song of Moses. And they sang the song of the Lamb. And this is, this is a never-ending kingdom that we worship. And this is a never-ending king that we worship. So allow me to pray for us. Father, Father. Uh, You are our warrior, our king, our Lord. You are our strength, our song. You've become our salvation.